My name is Dylan, and I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Each week we turn to God's Word because we believe that it is authoritative for us, that it is to inform and instruct everything that we do. Today we are in Mark chapter 15, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to Mark chapter 15. Well, there was a young man who was bound up, and standing over him as he laid down bound was another man with a knife. And he was holding this knife up to strike him and kill him. And as he's about to uh, lower the knife, driving it into him, he hears a voice from heaven telling him to stop. This is from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, speaking of Abraham and Isaac. It's a familiar story, and indeed it's a story that's kind of retold. A story of, of right at the point of demise, there's some sort of... De- Divine intervention and divine reversal, divine relief, release from death. There's a host leaving Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. And and on their way, they get stuck between the sea and, and an overpowering army behind them that's surely going to overcome them and destroy them all. It's an overwhelming force. So with the sea on one side of them and the army on the other side, we have divine intervention, a divine reversal. God steps in, clouds the Egyptians' view, and parts the sea so that they can go by. Go to Babylon, where we have three men who are thrown into a fiery furnace. And at the moment when they're thrown in, they could have been consumed, but when their demise is about to happen... Someone's in the fire with them, and they aren't even burnt. Or there's a man thrown into a lion's den, and when the lions are going to overcome him, someone shuts their mouths. In each story, and we could say several more, just before demise, there's this divine reversal, divine deliverance. It's a story that's never going to wear out. It's a story that's been retold over and over and over again by several different people. Marvel tells it all the time. When it looks like Thanos is going to destroy everything and own the universe, when there's only a few Avengers left, and even them, they've been fighting hard and beaten down repeatedly, they're looking at his army, all of a sudden these portals open. Reversal. Or Disney tells it all the time. Anna is frozen. All hope is lost. Everyone is mourning. And then a divine reversal comes. The beast is slain, and Belle is now sad because she loved him, and then all of a sudden, rays start shooting out of his fingers. <laughs> it's a common story, a story that will never wear out. So here we are in Mark chapter 15. Jesus is on the cross. He's, he's suffering. He's about to die. We've seen this story before. We know where it's going to go. This is the time for the divine reversal. All right, he's, he's going to die. He's our hero. And so here's what we need. At the last second, let's snatch him up and turn things around. But it doesn't come. Jesus remains on the cross. And soberly, it says, he breathes his last. Now, is this an anti-climax in the Gospel of Mark? Did he bring us all to this point to build it up to where now this is your chance Do the reversal thing that you've been doing. And did he let us down? 
Mark is actually trying to do just the opposite. The climax is the Son of God crucified in the Gospel of Mark because here it's where he shows us the most clearly that Jesus is the Son of God. And the Son of God is only ever seen, received, believed rightly through his crucifixion, through the cross. Mark aimed, chapter 1, verse 1, he aimed to show readers that Jesus is the Son of God. He aimed to give us that good news and to make sure that we knew that he is the Son of God and that that is good news. And here, he shows it the most clearly. Now, Jesus, after being flogged, beaten, insulted, spit on, nailed to a cross, nears his death, and that's where we pick up in verse 33. It's the sixth hour, and there's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour, that is, that would have been around noon. So they kind of started at around nine-ish. Again, Mark is not trying to be ultra-specific. And here they're around the noon hour. And there's darkness over the whole land. Now, darkness, even hours of darkness, is not something of note. Right? We, we just experience hours long of darkness. We call it night. It was not uh, anything out of the ordinary at all. There, there's clouds all the time. There are overcast skies. Like, there are storms that, that sweep through. Like we, we can know darkness even during the day. Even that's not even that uncommon, not really that noteworthy. But this, this darkness has to be different for Mark to point it out. Indeed, it is different. It's a supernatural kind of darkness. This is, again, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour is is noon to three. This is peak time for the sun. This is when it shines its brightest. It's, It's over the top of us. This is not the norm. On this day, light does not prevail. Darkness prevails for these hours over the whole land. Luke describes it that the sun failed. It didn't make it. It didn't prevail in Luke chapter 23 in his telling of it. So the question is, well, what could this supernatural act of darkness mean? If if Mark is trying to make sure that we know that there is supernatural darkness going on, then what could it mean? Well, perhaps the father is is marking the son's death. You remember at the son's birth, we have the supernatural light in the sky that people see and that even the shepherds are, it's overwhelming to them, the brightness of, of the angels come in this brightness. And so maybe like that, God is is marking the death of his son, but you don't do it with light because it's death. He brings the darkness. One says that at the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight, and at the death of the Son of God, there's darkness at noon. Or it could be, as another theologian says, that darkness was in all Judea when our Lord suffered. And why? Because the candle that lighted the sun and the moon was blown out. The Godhead was eclipsed, and the world's eye was put out. He took away the sun with him, as it were, to another world, when he that was the world's sun was put out. And when he went out of the earth, the sun could not stay behind him. Sun, what ails thee? I have not will to shine when my Lord is going to another world, as if the sun had said to Jesus, Lord, if thou be going to another world, take me with you. Perhaps it's part of that, that there's this, in a sense, this darkness is part of this trembling universe as the one who upholds it by the word of his power is concentrating all of his strength in this moment in his suffering. In the scripture, darkness speaks of lots of different things. It speaks of ignorance in sin. The people are walking in the darkness. You see this in 1 John a lot, that they're not just in the darkness, they're walking around in the darkness. He's speaking of their ignorance of sin. It can speak of sin itself. 
to be walking in darkness. It can represent judgment. You think of Exodus chapter, early on in Exodus, they had this plague of darkness that God sends to them. It was a plague of judgment, a curse in a sense. Darkness can also speak of separation from God. Jesus described hell as being cast out into the outer darkness, an exclusion from the light of God's presence. It can express sorrow. In fact, there's a verse that uh, sounds a lot like what we're seeing here in the Gospel of Mark in, in the book of Amos, chapter 8. It says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn their feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head, and I will make it like the morning, like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. So there's this darkness, this gloom that, that even nature reveals in mourning. And the darkness at the cross probably communicates all of these in some sense. In this great event. And the darkness speaks in unison with the Son of God. Perhaps even reflecting a bit the darkness that he is facing in his soul. Listen to verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it, they said, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see if, see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now the Aramaic, which Jesus would have been speaking is for God. The Aramaic word for God is similar to the Hebrew name Elijah. And so with the distance between where Jesus is at on the cross and them on the ground and with his suffering and probably dryness in his mouth and not being able to speak clearly, perhaps they, they think of him saying that he's calling out Elijah and it leads to their confusion. And Jesus at this point had been on the cross around six hours. And so of course, it seems only natural that he cries out, it says, with a loud voice. And what Jesus' words do as he cries out is it pulls the curtain back for us on his suffering and on what he's suffering. It's not merely outward or fleshly suffering that he's experiencing. Now make no mistake, he's been experiencing literally excruciating pain for hours now. But he doesn't say in his cry, this loud cry that everyone hears, he doesn't say, my chest, my chest. He doesn't say, my arms, my hands, my feet. He doesn't say any of that. He's been experiencing ridicule from all around, from people that he created. And in the midst of great pain and ridicule, he says... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of anguish, of distress, of lament. It's a cry from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1 that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a, a lament psalm and probably likely the, the most intense lament in all of the scripture. 
And fittingly so, right? That the, the most intense suffering that we see in all of Scripture is matched with the most intense, intense lament in all of Scripture. But Jesus isn't just quoting. He isn't just meditating on Psalm 22, 1, and this just comes out of his mouth. He's experiencing it. He's fulfilling it in his body on that tree. And his words reveal his most intense suffering. And it's not outward. It's not fleshly. It's inward and relational. That is, he says, my God, my God. Now, hours ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was crying out, Abba, Father, right? Abba. Luke has, a say, has him saying just before this in his account, in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, as he's thinking of the crowd, Father, forgive them. Here he cries neither, Abba, nor Father. He says, my God. Why the change? Because Jesus is experiencing the forsaking of his Father. That Jesus is experiencing intimacy that has never before been broken in all of eternity. He's experiencing its breaking. One says it this way, that on the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection in a pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. There is no greater inner agony than the loss of a love relationship. And we can't imagine, however, what it would be like to lose not just a human relationship that has lasted for some years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. The separation would have been infinitely unbearable. And so Jesus experienced God-forsakenness itself on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there have been some powerful father-son moments in the gospel of Mark. Do you remember at the very beginning in, verse, in chapter 1 when Jesus was baptized and he's sent out identifying with his people and the sins of his people and he's sent out to carry on his ministry. And what does the father say to him as a, in a kind of a commission as he sends him out? He says it in Mark 1.11 that this is my beloved son. He, he confirms his identity he confirms that he's pleased with him and where he's going and what he's doing. He does it again on another momentous occasion when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And as he's transfigured, they hear this voice from heaven that this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so the father has affirmed the son. He's spoken truly of how he feels of the son. There's no doubt between the father and the son, what are your feelings toward me? He loves the son. He's pleased with the son. Those were powerful moments. And here on the cross, what we have is powerful silence. There's no answer from heaven. I think... Jesus acknowledges that God is there. He says, my God, my God, but not his father. He cries, and there's no answer. And Jesus is truly forsaken, cut off. 
He asked why, not in protest, not to get pity from his father, like, why me? But as one who knows he's, he's innocent. And so it is a good question, why? Why is he forsaken? Jesus knew why. He told us why. In chapter 10, verse 45 of the Gospel of Mark, he told us why. He says that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to do what? To give his life. He knew what that giving meant. To give his life meant to lay it down, to sacrifice it, to be a ransom for many. He is going to be a ransom. In other words, he is going to buy back what is lost. And to buy back many, that is many people, requires a perfect sacrifice because the debt that those many owe is against an infinitely holy God. And so the sacrifice has to be perfect. It has to be of God and man. And Jesus comes to pay that ransom. But as he comes to pay that ransom, here's what he comes with. He doesn't bring a perfect lamb to the altar. He puts himself on the altar. He is the payment. He is the sacrifice. He gives his life. First Peter says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live God. Jesus' loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, isn't primarily a cry of physical pain, but of real forsakenness as Jesus bears sin in his body on the tree, as he bears the divine wrath of his Father for sin. It's the cry of the Lamb of God made to be sin, though he knew no sin. It's the cry of the Son of Man being a curse for us. And this cry of forsakenness is a loud cry that doesn't just need to resound from that cross. It needs to resound in our own lives. And it's a staggering statement of, of God's holiness, that God is this holy, that he would require a sacrifice like this in payment for sin. It's a staggering statement in the depth of the problem of sin, that sin is this bad, that this man would have to die. It's worse than we'd even dare believe on our own. One great theologian said that the father would have the most excellent person, speaking of Jesus, one next in order to himself and equal to him in all the glorious perfections of his nature, die on a disgraceful cross and be exposed to the flames of divine wrath rather than sin should live and his holiness remain forever disparaged by the violations of his law. The forsakenness of Jesus on the cross shows the height of God's holiness. That he is this holy, that this has to happen. It shows the depth of man's sin that it's this bad, that this kind of payment is required. And so the cry, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me, should remind that God is not a God to be trifled with. That sin is not to be treated casually. Yet at the same time, this cross and this cry from the cross is a stunning statement on the love of God for sinners. 
along with the height of the holiness it shows us, along with the depth of the sin that it shows us, the cross presents us with the breadth and the width and the greatness of God's love. If God is that holy and if sin is that bad, then what kind of love does God have to have for sinners that he would go to the cross? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Or another way of putting it, that God was so desirous to hear him groaning and see him bleeding that we might not groan under his frowns and bleed under his wrath. He spared not him that he might spare us. He refused not to strike him that he might be well pleased with us. Drenched his sword in the blood of his son that it might not forever be wet with ours, but that his goodness might forever triumph in our salvation. He was willing to have his son made man and die rather than man should perish who had delighted to ruin himself. He seemed to degrade him for a time from what he was. The cross then and this cry from the cross then become this place to show us the height of God's holiness, the depth of our sin, and yet the breadth and the width of his love for us. The cross then becomes the place where God and man can meet. That is the only place they can meet with reconciliation. Now we can come to him in other ways, but not with any hope of reconciliation, not with any hope of being with him in right relationship. You come to him by the cross or you don't come at all. Because your sin is that bad. He is that holy. This is the only path. But this is the path. This is the place that we can be sinners and not receive the judgment that we deserve because he received it on our behalf as our substitute. This is the place where we can actually lay down our sin and our guilt because Jesus bore it in his body on that tree. This is the place where Jesus identified us, identified with us so that we can bring our suffering Knowing that he suffered too. He knows what it's like. He actually suffered uh, suffering in which he didn't deserve. This is a place where you can come when you feel abandoned as the son cries out, why have you forsaken me? Do you ever feel alone and left to suffer by yourself? Jesus knows those things and you can lay it all down there. It's the only place that that's true. Jesus was forsaken so that you wouldn't eternally be forsaken. Jesus faced silence so that you would always have an intercessor. Jesus suffered in darkness so that your suffering would one day end and you'd have eternal light. So yeah, I think, let my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, needs to resound in our lives. Hear in that cry God's holiness and its heights. Greater than we can imagine. Hear in it the depth of our sin, worse than we dare believe, but hear in it, please, this great and beautiful note of God's love for sinners, and let us there, at that place where we're hearing it, not stop to just adore and worship the God who would die for those who caused his pain. But Mark shows us more of the beauties of the cross. It's not just darkness and dereliction, abandonment. That shows us a great God who would die for us, but there are more beauties. Mark concludes the cross scene not with darkness and dereliction, but with the curtain and the centurion. Listen to verse 37. 
Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. Elijah didn't come. The father didn't answer. And Jesus breathed his last. The eternal son dies in his human nature. He breathes his last. And this sets off a couple different events. One's in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And Jesus has already pronounced judgment on the temple. You remember the story of the fig tree. As he's coming into Jerusalem, he cursed it. And then he goes into the temple and he comes back out and it's withering away. It's because it was a tree that, that was, looked like it was bearing fruit, that looked healthy and good, but it had no fruits. And in the same way, the, the temple was like that. It, it looked like it was vibrant and full of life, but he went there and it was dead. It had nothing. He also cleansed that temple in a display of his judgment upon it. In other words, what Jesus was doing was that he was kind of uprooting the old center of their religious life. And he was instead planting himself down in that place. Like, this isn't the place anymore. There's judgment upon the place. The place where you need to go is me. You need to have faith in God. Trust in me. The tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom furthers this message and confirms it. Now, the temple had two curtains. One curtain would separate the the court from the holy place. And the next curtain would be further inside that, which would separate the the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, the the place where God's presence was hanging over the the mercy seat. So they have these two curtains in there, and essentially these curtains restricted access to God, to his holy presence. And they were necessarily doing that. God put them there. He instructed people, these curtains need to be in place because... The depth of sin, because the height of holiness, those curtains needed to be in there to restrict access so that God didn't break out in, against sin all around him. And one of these curtains was torn. Now, there's debate on which one it was. Uh, there's the thought that seems like linguistically it follows that it would be the curtain separating the Holy of Holies. But then they'd be like, well, who saw this to report it? There couldn't have been that many people that could have gotten into the holy place. You had to do all these things and be a a priest to even get there. So maybe it was the outer curtain. While there's confusion as to which one it was, here's what we certainly know. And we know which one is communicated as being torn. We look to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest... Of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Or we skip down to verse 24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's holy of holies is where he is gone. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
In other words, the idea being communicated is that Jesus has entered into the holy of holies and that we can kind of follow him. We have this conclusion from chapter 10, verse 19 in the book of Hebrews. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, the idea that's being communicated, whether we know for sure whether it's the inner curtain or the outer curtain, the idea that's being communicated is that the inner curtain has been at least removed from us to, to give us access to God. And it only comes through the cross. That's what we know is being communicated clearly in the scripture, that there's access to God and it comes through the blood of the lamb. It comes through Jesus, through the cross of Christ. The way to God is open. There are now no more sacrifices needed. We have blood that made an infinitely worthy sacrifice. So there no, now no needs to be any more blood. That blood is enough. Now we don't need high priests in order to gain and grant, be granted access into the presence of God. Jesus is our high priest. He has gone in and he didn't come back out yet. You notice he, he stayed, he sat, he remains as one who is our high priest forever. Not only is the way open, according to Hebrews, but it's to be entered into confidently through Jesus' blood. So church, what keeps us from going? What keeps us from entering in and living in and knowing the very presence of God? Some of you may think, but I'm just too bad. I could not be saved or enter into the presence of God. How could I know God? You don't know my sin and my past and how awful and horrendous it is, but let me tell you that God pursues you to the horrors of the cross. And any ounce, any millisecond of the suffering that Jesus faces on the cross is more than enough to cover sins of any past. Maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and think, man, I don't need saving why do I need the blood of Jesus? You need to know that God pursued you to the horrors of the cross, that your sin was that bad that God himself would have to take on flesh and die. Maybe there's some in between that think, thank you for the cross. I'll take it from here. And so we add on to, to God, right? We don't enter confidently unless we can add on our good works, Thankful for the cross, we have access now, but I can really only come in the right way if my hands are clean, if I've done my part, if I can add on to what Jesus has done by living this kind of life. For those who think that, you need to know that God pursued you to the horrors of the cross. He doesn't need anything added to the infinite, eternal suffering that Jesus faced on the cross. Comprehension of the greatness of the cross is not beyond our grasp. We can see it for what it is rightly. I think maybe Mark gives us a great example of this in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, this is Mark's climax. All right, Mark's aim, chapter 1, verse 1, was to show us Jesus as the Son of God. And here, in his most 
clearest form, he gives us that. Along the way, we had some confusing moments. In chapter 3, verse 11, there were some evil spirits. They were proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. He told them to be quiet. He didn't want that to be known yet. Mark wanted us to see Jesus as the Son of God, and he wanted us to get to it here at the cross as Jesus breathes his last. That's where he wants it. The Son of God is a title that tells of special relationship between the Son and God himself. It it tells of a special role that the Son would have to play. And the relationship of Jesus to his Father and the role that Jesus has to live out are only rightly understood at the cross through his crucifixion and through his death. That is, the cross makes Jesus' relationship and role come into focus. The cross is the only way to rightly understand both who Jesus is as Son of God and his role as the Son of God. It's interesting that at any moment, and he even says this in one of the other Gospels, like he could have ended his suffering. And he says, I could have called down a legion of angels to be here in a second. He could have shown his mockers that were saying, hey, you, you said you could save others, save yourself. He could have shown them any time he wanted to that he was the Son of God. Like, show him your glory, show him that you're the Son of God, and, and come down. He could have done that. He could have mocked his mockers, and yet he couldn't do it. And to show himself the Son of God, he had to hang on the cross. The person and the work of Jesus are only understood rightly with the cross in view, not apart from it. As the Son of God, he had to hang on the cross And it's only there we rightly see him. And I suppose that after seeing the Son of God suffer and die on the cross, that if the centurion didn't acknowledge it, perhaps even the rocks would have cried out. The centurion is not seeing anything different than what the mockers have been seeing. Still looking at the same one that they ridiculed. Outwardly, Jesus is like the thieves. Perhaps he's even worse because of what he suffered before. Isaiah 52 talks about that he doesn't probably even look that much like a person. That his appearance was so marred beyond human siblings. Or one commentator says that as he hangs on the cross, bleeding and battered, powerless and forsaken, the last thing he looks like is God. Indeed, he scarcely looks human. He looks like nothing but a hell-bound, hell-deserving derelict. That is one who's abandoned, forsaken. Well, it can't be the cross itself or the crucifixion that stands out to the centurion. Likely, he'd seen many crucifixions. He'd probably taken part in a lot of them. Nothing different here. We put him on the tree. We hang it up. We let him sit there and die. That's what we do. Seen it lots of times. There's nothing special there. A normal crucifixion. So what stands out to this centurion? It isn't the appearance of Jesus. It isn't the crucifixion itself. Mark only tells us that he saw how he died, verse 39. He stood facing him and he saw that in this way he breathed his last. In other words, just in looking at him, something was different. As he sees him die, something was different. His, his suffering was, was revealing something. His death was revealing something that was that maybe mysterious. Maybe he couldn't quite put his finger on it. And it makes him cry out. This man was surely the son of God. What are the means that got him to that point? We don't know exactly. 
Is this genuine faith or is it not? We, we don't know exactly. Mark doesn't linger on the means. He doesn't give us any more detail. What he does say is that he shows us the object of this man's confession. It's the Son of God. So whatever the reason, this centurion, who is the first to confess Jesus as the Son of God uniquely, he kind of gives us this picture of faith. It's not about sight. He was seeing what everybody else saw physically. It's not about some knowledge. He didn't have some sort of expectation likely of what the Messiah would be. He probably didn't have the knowledge of Old Testament scriptures in depth where he would say, well, this is the one that Isaiah 53 seemed to talk about. And Isaiah 52 said it was going to be weird when he he was going to look like maybe not even a person. So this must be the one. I don't think he had any of that. It's not even about the, the means. It's about the object. He saw him and he calls him the son of God. The object is primary. It's about Jesus. It's about his identity. That's what Mark has aimed to show us. That's what this man confesses unexpectedly, surprisingly. And that's kind of how faith does work, doesn't it? Just It hits unexpected places, surprising places that you wouldn't think there's never going to be faith from there. And all of a sudden, there it comes. Unexpectedly and surprising, this man facing Jesus confesses this man was the Son of God. And I think it's a good time to ask then, what do you see when you look at the cross? Brother, I, I think I should ask it this way. Uh, crucifixions were normal. And this is no ex- extraordinary crucifixion. I should say, rather, who do you see? And the answer to that question means everything. And we all have to look at the cross if we're going to see Jesus rightly. And in this climatic moment in Jesus' life and ministry, when the one that Mark told us is the Son of God hangs on the cross and is suffering and is breathing his last, no one stops the sacrifice. No sea is split in front of him. No one jumps into the fire and keeps it from burning him. No one closes the mouths of lions. But this is no anti-climax. This is the revealing of the Son of God. Jesus' reversal is going to have to wait. For now, the Son of God is paying the ransom. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you in that number. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus, what do we see? When we look at you on the cross, do we see something that is over the top or irrelevant or too much for the things that we've done? Or do we see a payment that's not enough for the sins that we've committed? Jesus, I pray that we look at you on the cross 
and we worship and that our hearts are overflowing with thanksgiving. Last night, my grandmother, who is dying and maybe has a few weeks, woke up and and my aunt told her to just go to Jesus. And she said, what do I say? <laughs> oh. What did we say? We thank you. We say thank you. Such stupid words compared to what you've done for us, God. But we are not worthy for what you've done for us, but you decided that we were worth it. Some of those brutal lyrics that we sang today are true, and brutal quotes we saw on the board that uh, you wet your sword, God, with the blood of your son so that you would not have to continually wet it into eternity with ours. This horrible forsaking Jesus, that you went through was to make sure that we are never forsaken by God. <laughs> Father, thank you so much that you will never leave us. That we didn't earn our way into your presence and into your affection and eventually into your new heaven and earth. We didn't earn that. It was given to us because of our faith. We just have to trust you. And God, I pray for everyone in this room, anybody else watching anywhere else, God, I pray that we would put our trust in you, that we would see the cross and that we would be ashamed of what our sin caused. And yet that we would also move on to rejoice and be thankful for a God who loves even us, even sinners, so much. God, grant new hearts today where they do not exist. If there is anyone here who is still in rebellion against you, I pray that they would put down their weapons and bow their knee and become subjects of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are a good king, and to follow you is a life full of blessing. It's still a life of pain and sorrow, and we still suffer, but you are good, and we have hope that on the other side of this, you are going to enter in and rescue us. You are the superhero. You come in at just the right time, and you're going to give us new bodies that last forever, and we will be with you forever. God, I want everyone to know you because that's why we were created. I want everyone to have that hope because it's true and because it's impossible to live without it. Jesus, we praise you today. Thank you for being forsaken by your Father so that we never will be. In your name I pray, amen.